in the middle of the hall. Okay, so just a uh, good evening, friends. Just checking that the sound is coming through okay for you. Could you uh, wave or? Okay, great. Thank you. So Cornell West has said, justice is what love looks like in public. Just like tenderness is what love feels like in private. And Dr. Cornell West is a professor of philosophy at Union Theological Seminary and author of the book, The Radical King, about Dr. King, whose uh, painting is behind me. Um, so I really love this, uh, this invitation to see justice is what love looks like in public. So here we are today on Dr. King's birthday, celebrating his legacy. We're also on a metta retreat, a loving kindness retreat at Spirit Rock. So it makes sense, it's appropriate that we would explore both what love looks like in our individual private lives as well as in public. At a time when 1% of humanity has come to own 82% of the wealth. At a time when multiple pandemics rage, COVID, climate catastrophe, racism, refugee crises, militarism, poverty, growing inequality, billionaires using their money for commercial space travel, when there are so many people struggling to meet their basic needs, on earth. So metta, it includes all beings, the earth herself, the entire cosmos. We inter are with all of life. So seeing this interdependence of all life, our practice leads us to act, to engage ourselves on behalf of all life. As Dr. King wrote in his letter from a Birmingham jail, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. So this is a very personal celebration for me as well because I probably wouldn't exist if it weren't for Dr. King. His life and his death had a large part to play in my parents coming together and having an interracial family. So we have a special guest here tonight uh, that I'm going to invite to say a few words to us. He is my dad. Al Lingo, who worked with Dr. King and the SCLC in the civil rights movement. I thought, what a good day to have someone share just briefly who knew him and worked with him. So my dad 
is a Christian minister and also a Buddhist Dharma teacher ordained by Thich Nhat Hanh. Um, he's now 85 and uh, he grew up in Texas and he later lived all over the world working in human development projects, practicing a kind of engaged Christianity. Um, he also became a practitioner of psychosynthesis and taught workshops on unconditional love and forgiveness all over the world. We have taught together several retreats also about love and forgiveness. So he lives in Atlanta, Georgia now, and I'm so honored to get to have him here with us and to share him with you so that he can share about his experience with Dr. King as a way to celebrate him on his birthday. I've asked him to be brief. So um, uh, there's lots more to, to also explore today, but we, we can't have two people on screen at once. So um, I, I offer you my dad, Al Lingo. Thanks so much for being with us, dad. Greetings to this spirit rock sangha on Martin King's birthday in its meta retreat. It's an honor for me to be here with my daughter, Kyra Jewell, and to be in your presence and to say a word or two about Martin Luther King Jr. I think to summarize, I would not have become a human being. Being raised in Texas, in the midst of segregation of the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, without the kind of inclusiveness that Martin Luther King generated, not only for me, but for many of us in America. If it were not for Martin Luther King, I would have not had the opportunity to participate in occasioning and developing the Civil Rights Act of 1964, nor the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And I had an opportunity to be a part of the happening of both of those. And I want to share that with you a little bit. In 1954, when the Supreme Court ruled that separate education was not equal education, it was 1956 that Martin King and the people of Montgomery demonstrated with a boss boycott that civil rights could actually work in my lifetime. And I became a follower in 1956, that same year, I was challenged by segregated students at the University of Texas to speak against the kind of presentation that white people thought was good humor. 
And this was a minstrel where white students with black faces made fun of African-Americans that they knew about. And I spoke against that in 56 and 57. And by 1961, that minstrel was no longer being performed at the University of Texas. My journey with Martin King uh, didn't just begin, as I've described. He actually came to my graduate school and spoke at the invitation of one of his teachers, who was also teaching where I was in, in school. And um, that occasioned our decision in Madison, New Jersey, at Drew University, to create a, a civil rights movement around the refusal of barbers in Madison to cut the hair of an African-American bishop, Bishop Barrow, from the Amy Zion Church. When I finished my theological education, I went to the South to work with students in Mississippi, not to work with Dr. King. But as history would have it, I showed up in St. Augustine, Florida, on my way to Mississippi and was immediately arrested and uh, caught up in night marches, mass meetings, and became um, aware of what kind of brutality that the White Citizens Council and the Ku Klux Klan there in Florida, North Florida, would do, because I experienced it myself. My first black boss was the direct action leader, Hosea Williams, who was later to lead the march on Bloody Sunday. While I was in St. Augustine, we went to the federal district court of Brian Simpson in Jacksonville, Florida. And our testimony about what happened to us around night marches in St. Augustine, Florida, and what happened to us in swimming pools and on the beach allowed Brian Simpson to take away the badges that the sheriff had given to Klansmen in St. Augustine, Florida. I had a Houston reporter come to me immediately in Jacksonville and tell me that he was a part of a group that uh, had heard them say they wanted to kill this white demonstrator. I wasn't wise enough to really believe that could happen. I stayed on in St. Augustine, Florida through 1964 uh, into the into the fall, and Martin King pulled us out, pulled us into Atlanta, and said that he had a new assignment for this white boy, and it really was to be a part of an operation called Operation Dialogue. That led me to work in Alabama, and um, led me to believe 
and how social change could take place and white people could come out and act on behalf of black folks and the right to vote. I thank you very, very much for this opportunity to speak to you in this meta retreat. May we be peaceful, happy, and light in body and mind. May we be free from all injury and hurt, free from anger, fear, afflictions, and anxieties. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dad, for sharing with us. And I just also want to name um, that you were also part of the the Bloody Sunday March. Um, and, And then finding places for people to stay when the march was allowed to happen from Selma to Montgomery. Uh, You went ahead and found uh, places for the hundreds of marchers to spend the night for four or five nights on their journey to Montgomery. Um, Yeah, so just uh, deeply grateful for you and and that service. it's been a, a kind of guiding light for me all of my life. So I also wanted to speak to the connection between Thich Nhat Hanh, my teacher, and Dr. King. Um, they met uh, in the 60s also, just twice, but those two meetings were very powerful and led Dr. King to nominate uh, Thich Nhat Hanh for the Nobel Peace Prize in 1967. And it was really meeting with, with Thich Nhat Hanh about the reality of the war in Vietnam that led him to come out against the war. And uh, he said something to, to Andrew Young, his colleague, like this Vietnamese monk is going to get me killed for coming out against the war in Vietnam. It was a side comment. You know, but... And when, uh, when Thich Nhat Hanh and, and King met at a, a Pachem and Terrace conference in Geneva, Switzerland, he had a chance to tell uh, Dr. King, he said, Martin, In Vietnam, we call you a bodhisattva, which means a great being, a being of awakening, of great compassion. And um, there's a new book out uh, called Brothers in Beloved Community, The Friendship of Thich Nhat Hanh and Martin Luther King Jr. It's by Mark Andrus, an Episcopal bishop. And... um, and he really follows the thread of their, their correspondence and their meetings. And this is a quote from Tai just before he had a massive stroke that uh, robbed him of speech and the ability to walk. He said, I was in New York when I heard the news of King's assassination. I was devastated. I could not eat. I could not sleep. 
I made a deep vow. Oops, sorry. I made a deep vow to continue building what he called the beloved community, not only for myself, but for him also. I have done what I promised to Martin Luther King Jr. And I think that I have always felt his support. So I, I feel so fortunate to have kind of grown up under the, the influence of Dr. King and then also Thich Nhat Hanh, who, who very much um, spent his life building the beloved community in a way that I think was very much a continuation of Dr. King's work. So how do, we, how do we practice to continue this work of building the beloved community? How do we practice justice? Cultivating metta that we're doing on this retreat as a way to impact, to manifest in public, right? How, how do we show what love looks like in public? So this is what I want to speak to tonight. And the first uh, element I would name is that caring for ourselves is caring for others, and caring for others is caring for ourselves. That, that these are two completely interconnected parts of our lives, that we aren't separate from others, others aren't separate from us. So I like to think of it as like an infinity symbol. So we care for ourselves, that brings us out to care for others, and caring for others brings us back to care for ourselves. And there's this continuous movement in and in and out of both, or really that that it's one one continuum, it's one thing. We're just at different points of it at different points in time. So sometimes it can be hard to give ourselves time for the practice and especially for some of us, you know, we've, we've been conditioned, maybe many of us, that practicing or even going on retreat, it can feel selfish. But we are not separate from others. And caring for ourselves means that we have more to offer to others on the, on the outward swing of the infinity journey. I had my own doubts about this myself. A few months after I ordained and took robes, I remember uh, reading about a friend of mine who was doing work in the Amazonian rainforest with indigenous people who were trying to protect their land from fossil fuel companies. And, and I thought, look at what she's doing. It has such an impact. It's so important. Am I, am I making a difference like that, being here in the monastery? And then I, I really looked deeply. I looked at, at Thich Nhat Hanh, my teacher's life, and I 
said, well, he's a monk. He lives in a monastery. But look at all the things he's been able to do. Look at all the ways he's been able to influence people and have an effect, you know, not just on individuals, but, you know, talking to government leaders, offering retreats for police officers and Israeli and Palestinian groups together and business people and speaking at Davos, the World Economic Forum. I mean, big and small, like talking to children, helping families, helping couples. And I, and I thought, you know, I can't say that he's not making a difference in the world because he's really focusing on um, developing, cultivating his mind. And so that, that reassured me. And I realized giving my life to developing my mind and heart was not somehow less than or, or turning away from the needs in the world. And that's something that, that Thich Nhat Hanh, his students call him Thai, which means teacher in Vietnamese. Um, Thai often would say that about our monasteries, our retreat centers, because there's also a number of lay practice centers in, in the Plum Village tradition. He would say these are places where activists, people who are engaged in, in transforming our society, they can come to these retreat centers and resource themselves. So we get to be part of that by holding space for them and, and supporting them. And Spirit Rock is part of this too. You know, the retreat centers in our Vipassana tradition are, um, you know, contributing in, in different ways to, to the work of transformation by holding space for many of us who are engaged in different ways in the world. And I, I saw a documentary recently about the life of Howard Thurman, who um, was a mentor to Dr. King and, uh, and also uh, was with him at Boston College. And uh, it talked about his role in the civil rights movement, that he wasn't on the front lines, um, but he was a contemplative. He was actually one of the people who really embodied nonviolence as a way of life and helped the leaders of the civil rights movement really understand it not just as a technique, but as a, as a whole framework for living that was much deeper. And so it was interesting to learn in this documentary about his life that you know, he stayed off of the front lines, but King and others came to him for inspiration and spiritual resourcing. Um, so, so the interbeing of the of the the inner path of cultivation, uh, modeled by Howard Thurman, and the outer path of action and transformation, social transformation by Dr. King were completely interconnected. So if you want to watch this documentary, it's called um, Back Against the Wall, something like that. It's on YouTube for free. It's a lovely story of this great African-American thinker and theologian. So some of you have, have asked about how our metta practice here 
can help with the injustice and suffering in the world. For instance, you know, when it comes to the failure of our public health response to the pandemic in, in so many places and so many ways. And I, I shared the story that uh, Bishop Tutu, Archbishop Tutu, he would pray for five hours each morning. That was his spiritual practice. And people would ask his assistants, you know, couldn't he make himself more available? And they would say, if you want Bishop Tutu, a prayer is what makes him who he is. So he was able to do these incredible things in the world, like Donald mentioned last night, chairing the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and so many other stands for justice in the world. But that came from his prayer, came from his caring for his inner life, cultivating his own mind and heart. And so it's the same with us, with the metta practice. It's powerful in shaping our minds and hearts and growing our minds and hearts. And as the Buddha said, it is our minds that create this world. So taking the time to cultivate our hearts is, uh, can have a big impact. And we're not just here for ourselves, even if it can seem like that at first. On the other hand, I talked about taking care of ourselves is taking care of others. It's also the case that taking care of others, serving others, is also serving ourselves. And much transformation, inner transformation can happen in putting ourselves into the world, into uh, situations of, of uh, engagement on behalf of others or on behalf of the planet. Um, so I remember one time when I was a nun, I was feeling confused and upset. And uh, Ty gave me a letter. Ty knew that I was going through a difficulty and he shared a letter of a man who was suffering very much and was thinking of suicide even. He had written to Ty and and Ty asked me to write back to him on his behalf. And the letter touched the seed of compassion in me and I was able to transform my own suffering in my wish to be there for him in his suffering. Um, So it sort of got me out of my small uh, small world of, of my, my difficulties at that time. And I remember another time, I, there was this period where I went through a depression as a, as a monastic, maybe a couple months. And what, one of the things that really helped me in that time was the chance to serve and be, um, be able to care for others. We had a 21-day retreat, and I was responsible for guiding this one little household of people, coordinating our getting to and from the talks and, and 
you know, facilitating our, our sharings and, and caring for others in that situation was really caring for myself. And I really came out of that dark time through, through that experience of seeing I had something to offer. I could, I could really be um, a support for, for people coming on retreat. So Tai has said, I don't want to live in a world without suffering because then I have no chance to develop compassion. Without compassion, we cannot be happy. Another piece of this uh, practicing justice, practicing love in public, which is justice, is is the energy of bodhicitta. This is a Sanskrit word, citta meaning mind, or actually really mind-heart, which in many Asian languages there is no distinction between mind and heart. So bodhi is awakening, so citta is mind-heart. So it's this this impulse of, of awakening. This is an inexhaustible source of energy and confidence. So this past November, um, my book was published. We were made for these times, 10 lessons in moving through change, loss, and disruption. And I had an interview with um, uh, a friend and, and colleague, uh, Pamela Ayoyatunde, who's the Lion's Roar editor. And when we, we were talking, she mentioned that the title was really about confidence. And I hadn't... I hadn't thought of it that way, but it really um, it made sense that, you know, um, this, is, this is the mind state that, that we need uh, to cultivate in our practice, especially in these times. And, and that is what bodhicitta offers us is... Um, this mind of love, this deep aspiration to awaken and help others do the same, it's, it's taking the path of confidence, of faith. So there's a line in the sutras, in the, in the chants that we, we have in the Plum Village tradition that says, once I have a path, I have nothing more to fear. So awakening bodhicitta in our minds it's like we have a path we know what we are doing with our lives we're here to wake up we're here to wake up others and then we have nothing more to fear so bodhicitta gives us this confidence i have a dear friend in when i lived in sri lanka uh, some years ago uh, this is a um, a friend who uh, came from a, a, another country to Sri Lanka. Uh, he was escaping his country, actually, looking for asylum. His family lived in the U.S. He was hoping to join them, but his country didn't allow people to just leave. So he had to falsify his travel documents. And, um, and he was caught in Sri Lanka and put in prison and uh, uh, someone 
a lawyer was able to to uh, take his case and get him uh, status as a refugee. So he's still there, but not in prison, waiting to be, um, uh, you know, given asylum. But in this time, you know, someone who's in this limbo for some years now, probably four or five years already now, he is someone who's full of life and full of vitality, love, very amazing clarity. He, um, he volunteers at a refugee center. He had me come and teach mindfulness there to uh, young people from different parts of the world who were, who were refugees there. He's someone who really can, is making the most of his situation in spite of the difficulties he faces. And I get so much inspiration when I think of him. We're, we're still in touch. And it just demonstrates the power of the mind and especially the power of this, this mind of love. This, you know, he, he translates Henry Nouwen, this uh, Christian thinker, into his his language, his African language. He's, you know, writes books of poetry. He <laughs> wrote a book celebrating his parents' 50, 50th wedding anniversary. I mean, this is, he, he has so much creativity. And, and so this is what's possible with the energy of bodhicitta, even in the face of so much difficulty. Um, so um, we can use our time, we can use all of, all of us can use our time wisely to invest in ourselves and in our own minds in this, this heart of bodhicitta. It's, it's so precious. We can do so much with our minds and our human life itself is so precious. So each each day we can do something to help the Buddha in us manifest more fully our true nature, our Buddha nature, our nature of awakening. Especially now when there is still lots of uncertainty and the pandemic continues into its second year, it's a very precious opportunity to cultivate our minds, to invest in our hearts, bodies, potential. So bodhicitta is a, a very important energy to be cultivating now. And it gives us incredible energy. It's what led Siddhartha, Prince Siddhartha, on his path of awakening for the benefit of countless beings. It's what motivated Gandhi and Nelson Mandela and Harriet Tubman and Mother Teresa it's what's motivating millions of people a little bit everywhere who are committed to being a force of change, of manifesting what love looks like in public in this time of great challenge and peril. So there is a story of of Dr. King and how uh, bodhicitta, this mind of love, allowed him to continue on with courage and trust. 
So he describes an experience uh, in his book, Stride Toward Freedom, about the Montgomery bus boycott. This happened in January of 1956. He received an anonymous phone call in which he was told, leave Montgomery immediately if you have no wish to die. So he got frightened hearing this. He hung up the phone, walked to his kitchen, and with trembling hands, he put on a pot of coffee and sank into a chair at his kitchen table. He described what happened afterwards in these words. I was ready to give up. With my cup of coffee sitting untouched before me, I tried to think of a way to move out of the picture without appearing a coward. In this state of exhaustion, when my courage had all but gone, I decided to take my problem to God. With my head in my hands, I bowed over the kitchen table and prayed aloud. The words I spoke to God that midnight are still vivid in my memory. I'm here taking a stand for what I believe is right, but now I'm afraid. The people are looking to me for leadership And if I stand before them without strength and courage, they too will falter. I am at the end of my powers. I have nothing left. I've come to the point where I can't face it alone. At that moment, I experienced the presence of the divine as I had never experienced God before. It seemed as though I could hear the quiet assurance of an inner voice saying, Stand up for justice, stand up for truth, and God will be at your side forever. Almost at once, my fears began to go. My uncertainty disappeared. I was ready to face anything. So... Dr. King shows us that even when we're in the midst of despair, in the midst of helplessness, vulnerability, we can accept our powerlessness and that this actually becomes a gift that leads us to surrender and trust. So this is a version of the Bodhisattva vow, this this energy of bodhicitta, the mind of love. It's the Mahayana uh, bodhisattva vow that expresses this trust in bodhicitta. It says, the many beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Greed, hatred, and ignorance rise endlessly. I vow to abandon them. Dharma gates are countless. I vow to wake to them. Buddha's way is unsurpassed. I vow to embody it fully. So each of us is maybe here on this retreat to find out what this means for us in our lives. What are each of us here to do with this precious human life? 
I, I was speaking to Andrew Young some months ago. He uh, was a very close confidant to Dr. King and he's a good friend of my dad's and had the, the gift of, of growing up uh, with him in my life. I was calling him to ask for support on something else, but he, he asked me, you know, how are you doing? And, and he, he just started telling me, he said, you know, your practice, your spiritual practice is the most important thing. He said, I know a lot of people in my life who, um, they don't have something to get grounded in. And when things start to get difficult, they, they don't know what to do. He said, but you, you have a path. That's the most important thing. That's what you, he, he just really emphasized to me. You have to uh, nourish this with, with all of your being. And, and it's, what, it's what Tai would often say, say, what is your ultimate concern? We get easily caught up in the day-to-day concerns of making a living and taking care of our families. And you know, all these things are important, but if they obscure what our ultimate concern is, then we don't have that grounding that Andrew Young was, was telling me was so important to not get lost when things get difficult. So this ability to come home to ourselves, to dwell deeply in mindfulness, to cultivate presence, it's how transformation happens. It is a key to our collective awakening to meet the real challenges that are already here and that are going to be coming faster and faster. So again, as the Buddha said, with our minds, we create the world. And the world is off kilter because so many of us are out of balance in our minds, in our hearts. So if we, if we take this challenge of bodhicitta to, to keep our ultimate concern front and center, that's a huge contribution to collective healing and transformation. Mindfulness leads to concentration. When we're mindful, when we're paying attention, our mind begins to get concentrated. It may not seem like that <laughs> all the time, but over time, it, it, our mind becomes more focused. And when our mind becomes more focused, concentration leads to insight. It leads to awakening, this ability to deeply penetrate our reality and to transform our mind and body, to ease suffering. So this is um, Grace Lee Boggs, has, uh, a Chinese-American activist. Uh, she wrote, The Next American Revolution, Sustainable Activism for the 21st Century. And there's a chapter where she talks about King uh, and, and Malcolm X. But here she's talking about how, um, about King's vision on a revolution of values. This, um, what, the, what the outcome of our really listening to our bodhicitta might look like. 
she says, to be successful in this transformation, we have to go beyond usual politics and undergo a mental and spiritual re-evaluation. We need to recognize, as King did, that, this is a quote of King, the richer we have become materially, the poorer we have become morally and spiritually. So that we can begin working systematically to, again, she's quoting him, bridge the, the huge gulf between our scientific progress and our moral progress. What this ultimately means is that we must undergo a revolution of values. Warning that material growth has been made an end in itself and that our scientific power had outrun our spiritual power, King rejected the dictatorship of high-tech which he said diminishes people because it eliminates the sense of participation. Enlarged material powers, he warned repeatedly, spell enlarged peril if there is no proportionate growth of the soul. We have guided missiles and misguided people. We must begin the shift from what King called a thing-oriented society to a person-oriented society. When machines and computers, profit motives and property rights are considered more important than people, he declared, the giant triplets of racism, materialism, and militarism are incapable of being conquered. So a revolution of values that really involves spiritual, moral cultivation. The inner, the inner part of the infinity symbol. Yeah. To take us into the outer, to really heal our planet, our world. So the last piece I want to bring in to this exploration of, of what love looks like in public is how do we do this work of engaging, of activism, of work on behalf of the world in a way that doesn't lead to burnout? So A.J. Musty was a, a Dutch-born American clergyman. I just learned today that my dad also got to meet him and demonstrate with him as part of the Fellowship of Reconciliation in New York. So he was a political activist, known for his work in the labor movement, the pacifist movement, anti-war movement, and the civil rights movement. And um, when asked by a reporter what good it did for him to maintain a vigil outside a nuclear weapons base, Musty replied, I don't do this to change the world. I do it to keep the world from changing me. So he had a super long life of activism and was, you know, sitting outside of the U.S. Embassy in Vietnam in his 60s and then in his 70s and his 80s still demonstrating and, and showing up as, as an activist. And he says this about what kept him going. 
He said, joy and growth come from following our deepest impulses, however foolish they may seem to some or dangerous, and even though the apparent outcome may be defeat. So it's remaining true to this call of bodhicitta, even if it looks hopeless what the outcome may be, if, if our deepest impulses say, I need to protect this, I need to stand up for this, I need to say no to this, I need to gather with others to, to um, make noise. Um, that is what, what is the most important thing that we have to obey, not what we think will happen because of it. So um, he's famous for the saying, there is no way to peace. Peace is the way. So there's also no way to justice. Justice is the way. There's no way to love. Love is the way. So... um, How do we show up with our full passion and aliveness? He uses the word joy in that quote, right? That that joy comes from following our deepest impulses. That's what keeps us going, keeps us from burning out. Another practice to avoid burnout is also skillfully holding suffering. Seeing how suffering and and happiness go together. So this is a a passage from my own book. Uh, We were made for these times. It says, in the Buddha's most essential teaching of the Four Noble Truths, he shares his discovery that suffering is a part of life and there's no escape from it. This is the first noble truth and acknowledging it can help us to suffer less. If we can accept where we are and not judge the disruption in our life as wrong or bad, we can touch great freedom. This is because fighting what is doesn't actually work. As the saying goes, whatever we resist persists. Thai Thich Nhat Hanh often said, a true practitioner isn't someone who doesn't suffer, but someone who knows how to handle their suffering. We could say that the measure of our accomplishment or success is not, our, is not that our life has no ups and downs, but that we can surf the waves. So this attitude of acceptance, of honoring the reality of suffering is not only true for our personal suffering, but also our suffering in the world. As a young nun, when I was practicing a classic Plum Village guided meditation, I came to the final exercise that said, breathing in, I dwell in the present moment. Breathing out, I know this is a wonderful moment. And I found myself stuck doing this practice, questioning how could we truly affirm that the present moment was a wonderful moment with all the violence, hatred, inequality, and preventable tragedies that are happening 
in the present moment all over the world. I sat in the question of it and began to see that along with all the suffering and pain, there are also many beings that are supporting others in the present moment. There are many hearts of compassion opening to relieve suffering, to care for others, to teach, to show a different way. There are people who are courageous and standing up for what they believe is right, protecting our oceans, cleaning rivers and beaches, advocating for those who are oppressed. There are those in every corner of the planet who are quietly doing things no one else wants to do, caring for the forgotten people, places, species, and doing what needs to be done. When I focused on that other part of the larger picture, I was able to touch that, yes, this present moment is also a wonderful moment. I saw that suffering doesn't have to disappear in order for beauty to be there. That life is about all of these things. The reality is that there is great terror and pain, and there is great love and great wisdom. They're all here coexisting. So even in really hard moments when we practice mindfulness, we can still give rise to contentment and peace because there is no way to peace. Peace is the way. So that means we can cultivate it even in the midst of hardship, even in the midst of injustice. And we can open ourselves up to to be in touch with the goodness, the wonder of this present moment in any moment. And this is an important practice of resilience for these times that will become ever more challenging. So this this call to love, the bodhicitta, it is, it's, it means that love is our fuel. Mm-hmm. That love is what, it's a very clean kind of fuel. <laughs> like an electric car, that's how our, how love is. So this is, this is, again, Dr. King from The Radical King, his sermon, Love Your Enemies. In the final analysis, love is not this sentimental something that we talk about. It's not merely an emotional something. Love is creative, understanding goodwill for all people. It is the refusal to defeat any individual. When you rise to the level of love, of its great beauty and power, you seek only to defeat evil systems. Individuals who happen to be caught up in that system, you love, but you seek to defeat the system. So we can, one modern day, manifestation of this 
call to love is, is this abolition movement, a profoundly inclusive uh, movement to, uh, to abolish all the ways in which we harm each other and create injustice. So it envisions ways to stop systemic harm and uproot the dangerous beliefs at the root of hatred, while at the same time encouraging everyone's flourishing through restoration, healing, and transformation, rather than punishment and retaliation. So in her book, We Do This Till We Free Us, Abolitionist Organizing and Transforming Justice, Mariam Kaba writes, Abolition is a vision of a restructured society where we have everything we need, food, shelter, education, health, art, beauty, clean water, and more things that are foundational to our personal and community safety. So I just want to close this talk by um, honoring and, and offering gratitude to my dad for joining us tonight and um, for, for your way, dad, of, of responding to bodhicitta, to uh, following in the steps of Dr. King with your life and offering that as a model to me and many others. Um, and continuing to build the beloved community. So I invite us to sit quietly for a moment. <clears throat> 